All right. We are in Acts. We are in chapter 7, verses uh, 54. Sorry, that's not 65. It's actually verse 60. I don't know what's going on with my brain this afternoon. Um, we have been uh, looking at Stephen. What a man. What a man. Uh, last week we looked at his um, sermon in the presence of the, uh, the Sanhedrin, and he took them on. He used their scripture to take on the, uh, the accu- accusations that was launched at him from false accusers, if you remember that's what the text says. And so a bunch of false guys came forward and, and said, this guy Stephen, he's against Moses, he's against the law of Moses, he's against the temple. And by the way, that's what we discussed last week uh, in, in the morning, the, the concept of the, the reason why Jesus was really um, crucified was because he said he will break down the temple, which was, you don't touch God's temple. That's, that's crazy. You don't say things like that. That's blasphemous. Well, that's how they interpreted it. And so um, Stephen has this opportunity to respond to the accusations And this is what he says to them throughout that whole sermon. If you go from verse 1 to verse 53, he basically says to to these guys, You accept Moses, you accept him as your prophet, but you don't accept what he says. Because he said there will come a prophet um, after him, which is Jesus. So you reject Moses, you're standing up here and you're telling me, Hey, um, you're against the law of Moses, but you yourself, you're against what Moses says. Um, he, 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 um, he challenges them to, to say, well, you guys accept the law from him. You accept the Ten Commandments and the laws, but you don't accept the, the prophecies and the promises um, that, was, that he said would, would take place. The same way the Exodus people rejected the prophet of their day, which was Moses, um, you reject the prophet of your day. Your forefathers rejected Moses in the wilderness, and here you guys are today, you reject Jesus. So you're the same as your forefathers. And you, you guys teach how bad the Exodus people were, but you're just as bad because you're rejecting the prophet of your day. Just like your forefathers killed the prophets of their day, which was, for example, Isaiah and, and, and those guys, you killed Jesus in your day. Um, you make the temple holy. You're like all upset because we say the temple will be destroyed. Um, but the temple is an invention of man. It was in David's mind, and then Solomon built it. God never said he wanted to live in a building. That's an invention of man. And, by the way, let me quote one of your own scriptures. God does not live in a building. So why are you making such a big fuss about a temple in which God doesn't actually even live? And so he uses uh, uses their own scripture, their own thoughts, their own... Um, zealous behavior against him. Now, and then he closes off and he says to them, you bunch of stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Um, You resist the Holy Spirit. Um, And the question then tonight is, how do they respond? How do you respond when somebody criticizes you, calls you a killer, a murderer? How do you respond? Do you respond with a smile? Um, Probably not. Well, look at what happens. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, this whole speech, 
They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. What does that look like? What does that look like? Um, And what's interesting, if you go look at the Greek, you know what this verse actually says? They were cut to the heart. It's interesting. The NIV does a bad job here translating this. Where else do we read that? They were cut to the heart. We read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when Peter said to them, you've killed Jesus. Okay. We also saw that in chapter 5, verse 33, with almost exactly the same translation as what we find here. What we pick up is, and the Greek word seems to indicate that they were, they, they, it's like a saw that's cutting their hearts in two. They couldn't bear what they were hearing. They couldn't bear listening to this anymore. And they were filled with great pain and uneasiness. They couldn't deal with the truth. And so they lashed out in anger. Now, this idea of gnashing teeth, where do we find this? I mean, is this the only place in the Bible that we find it? You know it's found in numerous places, and usually it's associated with the judgment, the final judgment of sinners. They'll be cast outside in darkness where there's gnashing of teeth. Usually um, in the Bible, it's associated with, with fear and suffering But in this context, I think it's really about anger. There's a psalm that speaks about this, Psalm 37 verse 12. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. So usually when you go through pain, like if somebody's going to cut off your leg, you watch it in the movies, they bite onto something, right? Because you're trying to endure the pain. Maybe these guys are going through a psychological pain, that they cannot describe, they don't know how to handle it, and so they just, it's like angry at this guy. Let me ask the question, how do you handle the sensitive truth? Sensitive truth. I've picked up with myself that when people sometimes say the truth, and I don't want to believe it, but inside inside myself, I know it's actually the truth. I usually respond in anger. When somebody pinpoints what is actually true about my character or about me, I'll respond in anger. Anger, when somebody tells you something that they perceive to be the truth, and you respond in anger, that's usually one of the good indicators to tell you, hey, this person has touched on a nerve. And I think that's what happens with these guys. They knew Stephen was talking the truth here. So they are angry, they are gnashing their teeth at him, and let's read what happens next, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I think Stephen knew. When these guys started gnashing teeth of them, you know, if, if a bunch of 70 guys start gnashing teeth at you, you pick up, you're in an unsafe space. He only had one thing to do. Look up to heaven. He looks up to heaven because now he needs God's help. And the moment I read that, I thought about the first psalm I ever learned from a young kid. This one, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And I, 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 I suspect that might have been what was going on in Stephen's mind. 
It's like, here I am. I stand as your servant, Jesus Christ. I believe in you. These guys are angry with me. It's clear that they're angry with me. I'm surrounded by them. That's probably what the, the, the courthouse looked like where he was at. And the only thing he can do is look up. And he's like, God, you need to help me. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He watches over you, will not slumber. Indeed, he watches over Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. It's very possible that this was in Stephen's mind, these types of thoughts. Well, I need to look up to the God who doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's always available. He must be there. He must be watching. Can you imagine what it feels like when you really need God? You look up and he's actually opened heaven and he's looking down at you. Can you imagine what that must feel like? The Lord watches over you. Yes, I can see you're watching over me right now. Wouldn't we want to experience that? I think it's incredible. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. And I, I wonder what Stephen thought a few moments later as you know what happens. And he realizes, oh my goodness. Um, harm has definitely come to me. Or did it? Is it really harmful when your life comes to an end and you go straight into heaven? Is that real harm? When he looks up, he sees, the text says, I think it says, the glory of God. That is something that nobody gets to see. I don't think the other guys in the Sanhedrin saw this. This is something uniquely reserved, the glory of God. Moses seems to have seen some, some of that, but I think Stephen is seeing something in heaven that Paul maybe spoke about, and he says he saw things in the third heaven that, he's, that man's not permitted to speak about, or he heard things. And he doesn't only see the glory of God, something reserved for Moses, he sees Jesus. And as I thought about that, I wondered, do you... Do you do you think that Stephen had ever seen Jesus before this? I, 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 I suspect maybe. But remember, Stephen only came in the picture after the church had started. And Jesus has gone to heaven. Can you imagine what it must feel like to, be, to believe in somebody and then to see him? And when you see him, he's, he's up in heaven. He's not on earth. And it's like... Jesus is sending a message. We don't see any speaking taking place, but it's almost like Jesus is saying, I've come to fetch you. Can you imagine that comfort? Um, and he sees into heaven and he tells everybody what he sees. How often do you look up when the horizontal view is bleak? I mean, if... If Stephen looks at the guys around him, what does he see? He sees gnashing teeth. And it's unbearable what he looks at. So he looks up. I think it is so easy. I mean, in my life, I, I tend to do that. I, I tend to look at circumstances. I tend to look at what is happening around me. And I, and, and I get discouraged. I don't know if you get discouraged. that You know, you're in a job situation. This morning spoke to a young man and... He talks about his job situation and how troubling it is for him and 
He looks at the bosses and the processes, and, it, and, it's, and it's really disturbing. If we keep on looking at a horizontal level, it's easy to get discouraged. There has to be a point where you we start looking up and you ask God, Lord, help me to look at this through your eyes. Help me to view this through heaven's eyes. I think it's very important. I think it's quite powerful um, how a sp- perspective from heaven can alleviate the pressure that we experience here on earth. Uh, I mean, Stephen here, I think immediately he's calm. These guys want to kill me. That's fine, but heaven, <laughs> heaven is on my side, man. Um, and he sees it physically. I don't know what that looked like, but I think it must have been incredible. So the text continues. How do they respond to this? At this, they covered their ears. Why cover their ears? They don't want to hear anymore. They've heard enough. They cannot handle this guy's words. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is crazy. I mean, this is Israel's leaders. These are the great spiritual leaders of Israel. What do they do? They don't listen anymore. They shout. They run. They grab somebody, drag him out of the city, and they start throwing him with rocks. And as I've said before, they don't throw you with pebbles like you're in the parking lot. They don't tickle you with little stones. It's rocks that break you, that break bones. Um, Why did they do this? Well, probably because of something, a verse like this. Leviticus 24, 16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native born, when they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. That's potentially a verse that we can use as to why they were going crazy over there. Um, Paul's, we might also then ask the question about the, the witnesses. Here's a text for us to think about. Um, uh, where's the text now? I didn't put it in. Sorry about that. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 to 7. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one person. The hands, this is important, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must, must purge the evil from among you. A quick question. Who were the witnesses in this text? Now, you weren't, yes, you weren't here. If, if you weren't here two weeks ago, then you will, won't know this. But they produced false witnesses to testify against Stephen. So these false witnesses who came forward, they must have been more than three, three or four guys. They were the first guys who picked up the stones and threw it at Stephen. They were leading the death penalty here. That is horrific. Can you imagine how deprived and sick you are in your mind to make up a story that convicts a person to death and then you do the killing as well, knowing this person is not guilty? Can you imagine that? 
And guess who is the person that says, go for it? Saul. The person that was probably involved in arranging these false witnesses. Paul speaks about this later. He speaks about it in Acts 22 verse 20. He speaks about it in his own words. And he says, And when the blood of your martyr, it seems like he's praying, when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So when you, when you go to stone somebody, that's, it's, it, it takes some exercise to pick up rocks and throw somebody with the rocks. It takes exercise. So what do you do? You take out your outer garments. You take off your jacket. You put it by the feet of the guy who says, yes, go ahead and, and kill this guy. The Greek word here that he uses for approval is suniodokio, which means consented, pleased. It pleased him. So when Paul says, I gave approval to the stoning, he's saying, it pleased me. And I gave consent for them to kill this guy, to allow them to kill this guy. It gave Saul pleasure to see Stephen be killed. That's crazy. The guy is innocent. And Saul says, hey... It's pleasing for me to see you get stoned to death. Now, the stoning of death, it's not, I, I cannot imagine that it's any good sight. To see somebody being thrown with half a brick in the head, it's, it's horrible. And what's striking for me is the man who's, who was pleased with the death of Stephen is the man who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Can you imagine that? Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, not self-seeking. The same guy who wrote that is the same guy who smiled and said, yes, kill this guy. And that brought up two thoughts in my mind. Firstly, encountering Jesus can radically change your life. It can change you from the guy who smiles at death to the guy who can produce the type of poetry in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's incredible what Jesus can do to you. It's incredible what Jesus can do to people. We can look at the most horrific people that we ever meet and know that if they only meet Jesus, their whole life can change. That's the power of Christ. But it's also intriguing for me, what I pick up is that it is pretty easy to be deceived. It's pretty easy to be deceived. Paul was not stupid. Paul was, well, let's say Saul was a rational, reasonable, intellectual student. And he was deceived in this whole process. To, to come to the point to say, it's justified for this guy to be killed. I think we must always be humble. Always be humble that we don't walk in the line of uh, deception. What happens next? Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen closes off his life on earth. 
his very short Christian life. He was just chosen in the previous chapter. What a short Christian life. It's the same, I don't know if you've heard of, um, there's a company in, in America called uh, the Borden Milk. Have you ever heard of that? Borden Milk. The, uh, I, can't, I don't remember the dates, and, but you feel free to go read up on the story. But the young boy, one of the boys of the family who started that business was going to inherit that whole business, which is quite, apparently quite a big um, story. And he, um, the parents wanted him to take over the, the business, but he wanted to, to travel first. And so he, he finished school, and he uh, went to travel, and he, he found a place in, I think it was China, that he really liked, a small village, and he, he found Christ, and he wanted to do ministry, mission work in that small village. And so he came back home. He told his parents that he doesn't actually want to take over the business. He would rather go become a missionary in, in China, this small village. And so he, uh, the parents said, hey, look, um, we hear you, but you're young. Um, that's a big decision to make. Just do us a favor. Just go study first. Go get your degree. Yeah, I don't know what it was. He started something about business, and after that, then you can make that decision again. And so he does. He does the studies. And then um, after that, he still says, I want to go on a mission. I still want to do the same thing. And then he climbed on a ship. He went to Egypt. I don't know why he was in Egypt. don't know how he was going to travel from there, whether he was going to travel over land or what the story was. But there was a pit stop in Cairo in Egypt. He climbed off, and apparently he got malaria and within a few days he died. He's a young man. Such a great life ahead of him with this mission for Christ, but he dies. Apparently there's a, there's a small um, sort of, um, what do you call it, memorial of him in, in, in Cairo. It's just sad sometimes because you, you expect that, these, that, that people that have, this, that have this commitment towards God, you would expect God to keep them alive for 50, 60 years. And it's just not always the case. Sometimes we just don't understand how God works. And you will see next week why this was an important death in the early church. When we once again look from heaven at what happens, it, it clarifies things. And sometimes in this life, we just cannot see what God sees from heaven. So it's sad that Stephen, his short Christian life is cut off um, and, and he dies. But he addresses... God as he dies. First he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it's almost, it, it reminds me of what Jesus said on the cross as well. It, it reminds me of, you know, it's like, it's sort of like Stephen is saying, I hand over my soul to you. I entrust my total being to you. Here I am. Think for a moment. Do you entrust your total life into God's hands? Your total life. You know, when, when we, it's like you're falling backwards and God is supposed to catch you. Can you imagine what it must feel like knowing that you, you're about to die? Some people, they kick against death. Do you know why? Because they're not ready to give themselves totally over to God. Must be a scary position to be in. But Stephen isn't scared. He says, Lord, receive my spirit. I know I'm... I'm going straight to you. 
And then what's something that's incredible is that he said, you know, he says, do not hold the sin against them. Now, the original language says, lay not this sin to their charge. In other words, don't put it on the charge seat, sheet when you judge them. Don't let them pay for what they are doing here. What? They are false witnesses, and they're busy killing you, all based on a lie. And you are saying, don't put it on their charge sheet. My goodness. And it is interesting that at least in Paul's instance, it seems like God listened to Stephen. Because Paul was a very bad sinner, and he was probably one of those guys that Stephen was praying about. And if we look at the rest of Paul's life, we come to see that indeed he did obtain that type of forgiveness. That Christ would not hold against him anymore the pleasure, the, the sinful pleasure in him to see Stephen die. So in many ways, Stephen experienced what Jesus did. The two statements are similar to what Jesus said, right? Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Stephen said the same thing. Jesus said, um, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Similar to what Stephen said here. But what's the one thing that is different between Stephen's death, martyr, and Jesus' death? What's one key difference? I'd like to submit to you God's presence. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stephen, as he dies, he looks up into heaven and God is right there. Maybe there's a lesson in there. We don't have to carry our cross or die our death alone. Jesus did that, but we don't have to. It doesn't matter where we go. It doesn't matter what, what we go through. It doesn't matter how horrible life gets. We have the presence of God permanently. And so we can never experience the harshness of what Christ experienced on the cross. God does not promise safety from evil men. But He promises His presence regardless of where you go. So, some potential thoughts. Just two thoughts. And if there's anything on your mind, please feel free to share it. This, I think, is important, very important. The more spiritual you become, the more grace-driven you are. Um, a good way to measure your spiritual maturity is to, ask you the, is to ask yourself this question. Do you want justice? Ask yourself in your inner being. Are you generally a person that says, hey, um, people need to pay for what they've done? People need to pay You've done wrong, you need to pay. Then you're a justice-driven person. Or are you okay for just to give grace? Now remember the, the definitions that I've given to you before. Justice is when you get what you deserve, right? Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. So grace is a free gift that you give. And so grace and mercy, they're sort of the same thing, just a little bit. Uh, differently. Stephen and Jesus had grace on their minds when they were killed. You agree? Grace. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
Lord, please don't hold the sin against them. They didn't have justice on their minds. If they had justice on their minds, they would have said, Father, give them what they deserve. Stephen would have said, Father, hold this sin against them because they deserve this. What do we know about Stephen? He was full of what? The Holy Spirit. And so you can draw a line. A person that's filled with the Spirit is always grace-driven. Want to give people what they don't deserve. This guy in the traffic, you don't deserve my grace. I'm going to give it to you in any ways. That's what a person does that's filled with the Spirit. Grace-driven. And both of them found themselves in an extremely unfair position. Remember what Jesus said. Listen carefully. Blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. The more you realize God is merciful towards you, the more you realize you've got to be merciful towards others. And so your proximity with God determines the amount of mercy and grace you show to others. But if you're far away from God, generally you are more justice-driven. And therefore, you know, that's a whole discussion, but you've got more guilt in your life. It's not only Jesus that said this, these types of things. What about James? James said, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So if we want to receive God's mercy at the judgment, we've got to show people mercy while we are here. If we want to go to the throne of grace... We need to be people of grace as well. The second thing um, I think we can maybe pick up here is, is the best thing to do in anger is to stop and do nothing. What did these guys do? Grab their ears, open their mouths, ran down, grabbed rocks. What if they stopped in that moment? When the anger flared, what if they stopped and said, let's pause this for a day or two before we act. They probably would have found out that these were liars, these um, false witnesses. And it potentially wouldn't have ended in the death of somebody. But they didn't. We tend to want to act quickly. I preach to myself here. I act very quickly. I, I, it is the most difficult thing on the planet to raise children. Then you have a wife that says, I want another kid. Your goodness gracious. I think I lost my temper with my kids three times to repent just in the last three days. Sometimes on a rip, they throttles out. Yo. They go into my, they go into our thing here. They take my shaving cream. They fill my shoes. <laughs> then they put it on my hat, on the inside of my hat. They put it on my golf clubs. Go golfing with Micah. Micah says to me, what's happening with your golf clubs? I thought they sort of knew. Um, is it rusting? No, it's shaving cream. And it's that shaving cream that's like, that puffs up. You know, it's like, and then it becomes bigger. My shoes. I take off my shoe. I try to clean it. I get stuck on the floor. I put on the hat to go golf. I forgot they put the cream in there. Yeah. Kids, kids, kids. And then you act, you scream, you want to give a hiding, you want to pick them up and throw them into the fan, whatever you can do. 
It's what it feels like. And you've got to pause. You've got to stop. Um, and often we end up sinning in our anger because we don't know how to just stop. 